2: When I'm dealing with people, I say, look, these are the, this is the core. This is where I'm going to, this is my hill to die on because this is where you're going to find your salvation, hope, and, and, and the power for salvation.
0: Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. There's a new book about the historical quest for Adam, and how that sort of plays in with science and the Bible. And there's really quite a buzz about it in the apologetics world because it's written by one of the greatest apologists of all time, great philosopher William Lane Craig. I've had Dr. Craig on the podcast before to talk about the atonement. So definitely go back and check out that episode because it was really fun. I got to read him progressive Christian quotes on the atonement and just get his response. And so we had a lot of fun talking about that. And And so I have a lot of respect for Dr. Craig. He's written many important works and defended the Christian faith so well. He's had some really interesting debates with prominent atheists. So I just definitely want to tell everyone, check out his work. Um, But he's written this new book. And uh, when I saw the title, and I'm going to pull up the title here, it's called In Quest of the Historical Adam, a Biblical and Scientific Exploration. And a part of the uh, in in the d- description for the book is he talks about this genre for Genesis 1 through 11 that he's calling mytho history and so when I saw that phrase I kind of went okay, you know, like, I want to see what that's about, because we all have hills that we'll die on, right? And one of my hills that I'll die on is defending a historical Adam and Eve, because I just think so many things are tied in uh, regarding the gospel with that. And so I haven't commented on Dr. Craig's new book, because honestly, I haven't had a chance to read it. It's it's kind of a thick volume. It's about 450 pages. Um, so what I thought would be fun is I, I reached out to My friend, J.R. Miller, who's been on the podcast before, he's sort of my resident expert on historical Adam and Eve. And I know that he has read the book. So uh, rather than him just tell me uh, everything he thinks about the book or his analysis, I thought we just would let my uh my podcast listeners and my youtube audience listen in kind of be a fly on the wall as he explains to me what this book is all about so uh joe great to have you thanks for for being willing to do this kind of publicly and explain to me what the book's about and maybe some questions you might have about it even maybe some concerns as it would relate to the mm-hmm. gospel so but but you're an expert on Adam and Eve and I think I can say that fairly because you're writing your phd dissertation on this aren't you? tell tell us about your phd dissertation
2: yeah, so this topic, Adam and Eve, came to me, I guess by accident in a way. So years ago, when I did my Master of Arts in Science and Religion, I started looking at Hebrew cosmology and, you know, the origin story that, that the Genesis tells, essentially. And then compared that to ancient Near East civilizations and their myths and their stories. And so that's what got me started and said, Well, hey, what <laughs> that pushed more towards Genesis, which pushed me towards Adam and Eve. And then I said to myself, Well, how can I get this next generation to care about the Bible and theology and doctrine, uh, because the issues they care about are really more social issues, that the the moral issues that are driving the culture. So I said, well, what's the driving issue? Uh, race racism seems to be one of those driving issues. And I said, well, does that have any relationship to Adam and Eve? So it started me down this long road, basically. And and my my point that I tried to get across in my work is that. Uh, the historical Adam and Eve give us the best foundation for not only uh, knowing that racism is wrong, but for uh, protecting and preserving the dignity and really the sacredness of every human being. So that's where my background is. And that's where I kind of come into this study of Genesis and the origins of Adam and Eve.
0: Great. And we also did a podcast together about that topic. So if people want to go back and look for that in the archives, um, I've got one of my favorites, because I just love this topic. I love talking about Adam and Eve and just as it relates theologically and just I'm not really that great in science, but it is fun for me to look into kind of where the science is going and all of that. And so, of course, this book that William Lane Craig wrote has been sort of something I've been really interested in in knowing more about. But as I mentioned, it's dense. It's, you know, this is a scholarly book. This is something that most Christians in the pews are probably not going to read. They they're might even be going like, why, how is this even relevant to me? Some guy <laughs> writing a book about mytho-history. Oh, my goodness. So why should, why should we We care about this book, Joe.
2: Yeah, that's you know a great question because uh, the truth is most folks aren't going to read a 450 page book that's written really for academics. It gets deep into a lot of the weeds of both you know biblical hermeneutics and the science and evolution and origins. It's it's a pretty deep read, Uh, but I think people need to care about it for a couple reasons. One is you know if you send your kid to a school. Uh, a Christian school, uh, especially, uh, their professors are probably going to read this book. Uh, If your pastor goes and gets training at a seminary, most likely they're going to encounter or read this book as part of some of the coursework they do. So you may not read it, and most people may say, oh, that's too much for me. But the people who are leading us and who are developing our perspective, our theological perspective on the world and on the Bible will read it. And so when questions come up from atheists, and non-believers, or even Christians that are questioning, can I trust the Bible? How we answer this question of Adam and Eve, I think, ends up playing into that conversation and how we answer that question of trust in the scripture.
0: And as someone who's in the apologetics world, what I see as well is that when William Lane Craig comes out with an idea, it's going to really steer the ship of where the apologetics community lands on some of these Uh, Questions, and so I think it's really important for us to engage with it because, uh, and again, like I said, we love William Lane Craig, but you know it doesn't mean we have to agree with him on everything, and and it might be worth doing a little pushback if that's necessary. Again, I don't know. I'm learning all this for the first time from you because I don't know. At some point, mm-hmm. I do plan on reading the book because I want to be able to engage with it myself. But I also really uh, appreciate your work and your perspective on these kinds of things from such a knowledgeable place. So um, so let's just kind of get into it. So I know that the book's broken up into a couple of sections. Uh, what, what does it say ultimately about Adam and Eve? What, you know, I don't know if you want to kind of yeah. give us a flyover of what his basic arguments are and where he lands, and then we can maybe dig deeper.
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, everybody familiar with Craig knows that he does, uh, you know, some amazing scholarship and some amazing writing. And, and I think his effort in this book is, uh, is admirable in the sense of, hey, he's trying to understand how does our way of understanding the Bible, our theology, mix with science? how do theology and science work together? And that's, his, that's his really his main goal is to try to understand that in the story of Adam and Eve. So the first part is really what he proposes as this new hermeneutical approach, new in some ways, not in others. So you know, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but, it's, but it is unique in, in many aspects of what he's trying to do. So he wants to apply it to Genesis 1 through 11. So he has this new hermeneutic for that. And then part two of his book, is where Craig gets into the science and argues that Christians really can accept everything the consensus science tells us about animal to human evolution. So the origins of, you know, hominids and all that stuff, he digs into all the science and says pretty much we don't have to reject any of that stuff. We can take that as fact. And then he says, how do we then that connect with what the scripture tells us? So there's a little bit of good news in this. Uh, So I'll start with that, the positive. Craig does affirm the necessity of a historical Adam and Eve. He believes that uh, if there is no historical Adam and Eve as the first man and woman, that it creates problems for the New Testament uh, redemption in Christ. So he's pretty explicit about that, that needing this historical Adam and Eve. Sort of the bad news then, you know, what he gives with the left, he takes with the right or I don't know what the expression is, something like that, it goes <laughs> kind of gives and takes a little bit there. But the bad news is uh, that basically Craig asserts that Genesis, Paul and Jesus, none of those really tell us so much anything about this historical couple. So what the Bible t- says is uh, it gives us these sort of theological truths about the couple, some people call it their textual humans or theological humans, and others, we just know these bits and pieces of stories. Uh, and this is what he calls mytho history. So there's historical people, but really what the Bible tells us are, th- are these theological mythologies that were used uh, to explain why they even mattered. So Craig says mm-hmm. that, like, even if Paul believed in a literal creation, so when you read the New Testament, even if Paul believed in a literal six-day creation, he'll say, uh, we're not obligated to share his beliefs. Even if Jesus you know, talked about Adam as this real person, we don't have to believe that. That was just Jesus' belief. Um, does he, he does actually word it
0: like that? Does he actually say that yeah. was just Jesus' belief?
2: Yeah, well, he frames, it as an, he, he frames it as an argument of like, well, even if we were to assume that Jesus taught this, it doesn't mean we're committed to those beliefs. And so he says, so it doesn't mean we're not committed either. He wants to try to say, okay, let's put everything on the table. But yeah, that's the premise of how he opens up the chapter, uh, the beginning. uh, I I think it's that parts in the introduction when he talks about like how he's approaching to this whole thing. He wants to put a sort of lay everything out on the table. So yeah. So if Paul believed, even if Paul believed this doesn't necessarily mean that we're committed to his beliefs. We're only committed to what the Bible teaches us. We should, we should believe Is, is the distinction he's trying to make. Okay. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes sense. But I see that it's look. Like, You're like, he can't really face, see. I know. That. I'm like trying, <laughs> try not to make yeah. the face. But <gasps> I mean, the to. It's one thing to say when we talk about the biblical doctrines of inerrancy and inspiration. It's one thing to say that God inspired the words. Right. The authors didn't mm-hmm. have. Uh, the the authors of the Bible are not all. All knowing, right? So that's part of what we talk about with the the doctrine of inspiration. What what's inspired is what God spoke through them, and of course they weren't human typewriters. God certainly used their personalities and cultural contexts and all that. But there's there, so I can almost go there when he's talking about Paul, if that's what he means. And of course, also trying to just give him as much grace as possible. But um, but when you apply that to Jesus, that's a different category. Um, To to say that maybe Jesus. Was wrong about, or is that kind of what he's saying? Or am I misunderstanding that? Yeah,
2: you know, I've heard him explain this uh, on on talks as well as what I read in the book, Uh, and 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 I just I get to part what he's saying, and I think part of there's there's a small bit of truth or point of agreement that I have in this in this sense. It's kind of like what you're describing. So uh, we can go. Let's go to the Old Testament, for example. So prophets. So Jesus gave God gave uh, the prophets of the Old Testament these messages to deliver. And oftentimes when they talked about a, a, a savior or a messiah, you know a prophet might have even had a concept of a political redeemer as we see the the Pharisees mm-hmm. did in the New Testament. so it wasn't until that the fuller revelation came that we understood, oh this is what they this is what God meant by this it was Jesus born as he was of a virgin and you know it wasn't just a young marriageable age woman but she was actually you know physically a virgin you know so so prophets may not even understood that yet they were given the prophecy and I think what Craig is by sort of analogy in some way saying is like, well, just because Paul believed that there was a certain way of understanding something doesn't mean we're obligated to believe that because his beliefs aren't what we're committed to as Christians. I think that's mm-hmm. the big premise. And I don't necessarily think that that's a, a flawed premise, but I do think that the way he's applying it uh, is, is a bit troublesome and how he approaches this topic. I think it's, a, I think it's an outlet to... Frame his argument, and uh, I just think he takes that point too far. Would be my point.
0: Yeah, because I would agree with you, especially as it relates to Paul. But I think for where the the really problematic thing came in for me is applying that to Jesus. That that was the part that I was yeah. just kind of I'm still probably trying to wrap my head around uh, what he means yeah. by all of that. I, so, I've heard and- an
2: interview on that, and it's it's a little troublesome to. You know the question is: Did Jesus know that? You know, for example, that would he have known about evolution, or was he was he mistaken to think that there was a man and woman created by God at this sort of special moment of creation? And uh, you know, I think Craig may try to shield Jesus from that a little bit because he was incarnate and gave up certain knowledge, so he would be limited uh, in in his human context from that. But yeah. I, I don't think that gets around the issue of a historical Adam and Eve. Uh, because he still says they're historically the progenitors of all living humans. Whether they evolved or not is irrelevant. They're still there as the progenitors. So yeah, he'd have to have some false beliefs, not just incomplete beliefs to really buy that. So I think think it does open a a, a can of worms that we don't really want to open.
0: Yeah, because even in the doctrine of the incarnation and Jesus' deity and humanity – You'll hear people refer to his voluntary non-use of some of his attributes of deity while mm-hmm. he was in his human form. But you're right to to put that even further into. Not only did he not use them, but actually could have been wrong. I don't know. I mean, it's just it's just an interesting um, yeah. it's it's an interesting thing to sort of think more about, you know, and not and not just accept just because somebody's saying it. I think. So I want to ask you just—I know that you mentioned there's some good news, and I want to ask you what the bad news is, too. But before we get to the bad news, can I ask you—I want to know how he defines historical Adam. And the reason I'm asking that is because for the longest time, when I was thinking about historical Adam and Eve, I'm thinking special creation that would not just, you know, be too— the first couple out of maybe 10,000 of a larger group, yeah. as sometimes I've heard people explain it in theistic evolution, because for me to just say it's two people that maybe God breathed his, you know, Imago Dei into out of a particular group of people or something like that, I think there's there's some problematic ideas with that. But how, mm-hmm. Does he mean a special creation or is he talking about, uh, you know, evolution in the sense that these are hominids that became
2: human beings? uh you know this is i actually i think one of the weaker parts of of his of his book he sort of leaves that really undefined uh, mm. and when he talks specifically about that uh, at least not i would like to see some more detail and i think it's because in part craig's view is to create a sort of a you know like how cs Lewis had a mere christianity what are the basic things we have to hold to and so i think he's trying to do a sort of a a mere adam and eve kind of thing what are the most basic things we can do so he's trying to intentionally leave out stuff that might go beyond that. But in the same way, I think it, it, it becomes an incomplete storytelling on his part of what actually happened. But essentially he, he will say this, let's say we accept that uh, the story of, of evolution is a fact because that's the scientific consensus. So he's beginning with the scientific consensus as the sort of truth that he wants to build around. Hmm. So, you know, hundred thousand years ago, uh, hominids had evolved to some certain level, and this is this is sort of his description of it sort of they They evolved to this sort of higher level where maybe on their own or maybe God does something miraculous in them he doesn 't say which it is he basically says you know choose whichever option you want so did they, did they become human just by purely ev- evolutionary means, or did God do some miraculous work? Either way, they reached this sort of point where they became the first two humans. And so, out of this larger group of hominids, there were two people that were called Adam and Eve. And now he does say, he, wa- he does want to say that those two humans never uh, did any interbreeding with the other hominids outside. They they those two because they're far enough back in time could be the literal uh, mother and father of all human beings, which he is a doctrine that he's trying to preserve in his approach, which is good because I think that's a critical piece of doctrine that that he tries to preserve, Uh, and so he's trying to find a way to do that while buying, uh, you know, while advocating for the consensus science on animal to human evolution.
0: So essentially, that that's the goal of the book. Then, if I'm not misunderstanding you, is to. Make the doctrine of a literal Adam and Eve and the doctrine of what people call, you know, theistic evolution or evolutionary creation. He's trying to make those compatible, essentially. Yes. Is, that, is that fair? Yeah,
2: that's okay. that's fair to say. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, so he's what's trying the bad to put? News? He's trying to put. Yeah. Well, he's trying to put Adam and Eve far enough back. Basically, his argument is: let's find the oldest hominids that displayed enough. Uh, either art or consciousness, or they buried people. Let's find enough evidence. So whatever whatever hominids we can kind of find evidence for, we'll just say Adam and Eve came from that group of hominids. And So if somebody, some an older group came along that had cave paintings and stuff, he'd say, oh, well, that's the group Adam and Eve come from. So he's just trying to push it back to whatever science tells us the group came from. That's where it came from. So, yeah. So I think in the bad news uh, is – uh, or at least my biggest concern is in the first half of his book is that uh, Craig's proposal really for understanding Genesis and, and even the other parts of the Bible, I think there's implications for that as well, uh, the, especially those that deal with creation. Uh, he, he segregates or alienates really modern readers from truly knowing. There is no true knowledge that we can have uh, with about what the Bible says. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, on page 105 of his book craig says this quote i take it that fantastic elements are those which if taken literally are so extraordinary as to be probably false so in other words he's saying like the events especially in genesis 1 through 11 are so fantastical is the word he uses there's there's so many inconsistencies with these stories that nobody at that time would have taken it seriously and why you know so we can't take it seriously as a literal thing because they're just too unbelievable to believe, uh, and I guess the two problems that creates uh, is that first that means that only experts, whether they're experts in ancient Near mythology, experts in higher criticism, which he says is the only way to understand uh, Genesis. So if you reject higher criticism, you're you're going to misunderstand completely.
0: Now, very quickly, uh, the, give the, the us a definition yeah. of higher criticism for people listening who may not know what that sure. is. Sure.
2: Okay. So higher criticism is essentially. Uh, uh, a group came around as a way of understanding the text and it divides it into multiple sources. Initially, it's J-E-D-P were the sources, but that's not really important. But it's saying that underlying the text, there's these historical texts that we don't have access to, we've never seen. But because the writings of say like Moses have these different qualities. They use different words for God, like instead of some use Elohim and some use Yahweh. And so these reflect these different sources that Moses or the compilers of the Genesis wrote. And so we can divide all of the the text into these multiple sources, again, sources that nobody has ever seen, nobody knows exist, but we just conjecture that they have to have existed because of these inconsistencies within the text itself. And so it gives you a framework to pull apart the text and say, this part came from this source, this part came from this source. And then there's an interpretive methodology that comes with that. And it's been revised a thousand times since it Mm -hmm. came around uh, and it's still under revision. And this is referred
0: to popularly as the documentary hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, documentary
2: hypothesis. You know, Craig doesn't actually say what his specific view is on it. He appeals to some of these higher critical scholars. But he just sort of says some form of this is what we use. Uh, but what that some form means, I don't know. I think it's one of these nebulous parts about his book that I, I have a concern about yeah. just because it's so ill-defined. So here's um, here's a couple of yeah. just
0: concerns I have just from what you've said thus far is so he's just accepting higher criticism as a framework through which to to do his scholarship would you is that accurate yes. cuz yeah. you know basically for people who may not understand the implications of all of that that's really um a denial that Moses wrote the first five books of the bible right that so that's kind of saying it was it yeah. was just it was several different authors yeah. and editors and um you know maybe Moses some of Moses yeah. words made it in there but
2: yeah some may argue that well Moses had access to these ancient documents, and maybe he was the compiler, so they wouldn 't want to deny Moses as the author but yeah a lot of it's dated after Moses in the historical way of looking at that you know these these source documents were dated much later, especially a lot of the priestly documents, that kind of stuff so uh yeah, at some point you have to say there are sections that really weren't from Moses, I think. I'm not sure how you can legitimately get around that without saying you've Sure, because you
0: you do have yeah. Joshua, you know, they're there's they're recording Moses' death. So somebody somebody yeah. did that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um but my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that with the documentary hypothesis though it 's taking it a lot further, like obviously even people who yeah. reject the documentary hypothesis will say, well, sure there were there were some some things that were maybe um, compiled later, a few, but not like the the major part of it. It would just be like like mm-hmm. that like after Moses dies, obviously maybe Joshua uh, you know recorded that or something, and so this is mm-hmm. something that there 's a lot of debates about even in the apologetics world and in the world of scholarship. Yeah. Uh, but, but one thing that is just interesting from that quote that you read, and I've seen that quote floating around because mm-hmm. I have read some critiques and then I've read William Lane Craig's own defenses of the critiques as well. So, yeah. you know, I'm just trying to be really fair here. Um, oh,
2: yeah, yeah. But,
0: but it's really um, concerning to me when he says something like you're basically using your own subjective opinion to decide what's fantastical because, frankly, a yeah. guy walking on water, turning water into wine and then being resurrected is pretty fantastical as well. You know? Yeah, and, so- and see, that's
2: that's really the second concern is that like so you know part of it is if you're not an expert in ancient Near East you know ancient Near East mythology if you're not an expert in higher critical you know analysis if you're not actually an expert psychology because part of his argument is well nobody back then would have seen that as possible you know people reading it then so how do we know what people would have believed except for what we have recorded to us. Yet we reject what's recorded to us, even if they say they believed in it, under the premise that well, nobody really thought that took that seriously. Well, who knows that? I guess you know, doing psychology Mm -hmm. from four thousand years out, I guess is the only way to really know it. And I and I hate to sound, you know, like like terrible. I know it sounds like like I'm misconstruing something when I say that because it sounds so odd. But I, I I just don't see the way around that. But that leads to your that whole idea of fantastical or what's unbelievable becomes a decision of the culture or the individual. So mm-hmm. if it's not, if it's not, if it's so unbelievable because science tells us it's unbelievable, what about people for the last 2000 years? Uh, you know what? And then you get into the miracles and the other things, you know, Balaam has his talking donkey. Uh, there's stuff in Genesis outside of chapter 11 that that it seems just as fantastical that I know many Christians have walked away for those things. Craig wants to say, no, no, what I'm saying only counts for Genesis 1 through 11. So he's basically adopted that sort of hermeneutic that many skeptics would adopt. He's just trying to say, I want to limit it to Genesis 1 through 11. Is really where, where he differs from some others. Does he have uh, but I think- uh,
0: like a reason he would stop it at 11 or?
2: <sighs> Honestly, after reading it, none that I think really makes sense. Um, I, I think that- he, it's sort of he assumes that his argument is true, and therefore he sort of assumes that in the argument. Um, and his justification is for it. Well, Genesis one through eleven is different, and he puts in that uh, you said about genre analysis. I it, so I like it. I don't know. He's genre. He does uh, those he German he, he,
0: accents really well, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he does the German
2: thing. And I like laugh when I hear him say it. When people go watch his videos, you'll see it. It's kind oh, of yeah. funny because he's talking like a person in that <laughs> I can't Uh-oh. do it. Yeah, I know. I'm not good at it either. But anyway, so that's just a little fun. So uh, <laughs> so he wants to use that sort of genre analysis to say, well, it must stop here. But the problem is there's not any solid criteria anywhere in his book that I would say, as a as an expositor of scripture that that I could use to say, oh, okay, this is how I can repeat the process that Craig did to, to make this hard distinction between chapter 11 and chapter 12. You know, as a reader, you know, what, what, what do I look at and say, oh, can I, re- can I, can I remake that recipe, right? So here's, his, here's the cake he made, can I make that at home? Can I read my Bible and make that same thing, you know? And, and I don't see that framework legitimately in there for just the average reader. So it kind of puts the hands, the hands of that in scholars, and the hands in really a subjective interpretation. A lot of those elements, uh, and, and so it's not very concrete or repeatable. So I, I think that that's that's one of those weaknesses I just can't get around in what I read.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's get into this genre of mytho um, history. Genre, genre <laughs> of mytho history. Um, what does that mean? I, I, you kind of hinted at it before, but uh, give us a good, solid definition. What does he mean? Now, is this this is something he's come up with, right? This is sort of his invention, mytho-history genre.
2: Yeah, no. So the idea of mytho-history, or you know, the way he's using the word, I'll say this is, it's been around. There's other people that have nibbled around this and talked about it in this in different ways, but um, but Craig's implementation of that is a little is a little different than I would say most others. And I did an interview actually with a, with a great scholar called John Oswald, and I posted that on my site a while back. Uh, and he's, he's dealt with some of that expertise as an expert in uh, Old Testament. And I, the problem is, what Craig says, essentially is that you can't really give a definition of mytho-history. You have to know it by these, uh, I believe it's what, 10 criteria. It might be 12. I'm off the top of my head here. Mm-hmm. Uh, 10 or 12 criteria. I think it's 10. But uh, so he gives these criteria that you'd have, that you'd use. He says that all mytho history uh, involves these criteria to some degree or to another. And so what he's saying is, instead of me giving this clear definition, you just look at these criteria and evaluate it. So I think for me, right there is a problem because there are solid definitions of what is mythology, what is not mythology, especially in the ancient Near East. And you know when you evaluate the biblical text compared to those other mythologies, the Bible is is not mythology. It's not mytho-history, it's it's a history. So what I think the challenge is for that is, if that makes sense, is that um, Craig takes this category based on these descriptors, and then he says, this then determines the historical nature of the content. Most other scholars, like Oswald um, and uh, uh, Jack Collins, Who's going to be presenting here at the ETS coming up and sort of the panel discussions with that? Collins, I think, has a better framework for dealing this than Craig does. Actually, is is a hermeneutic, but um, they'll say that. Look, yes, there can be elements that uh, Moses could have been using the storytelling methods of the day, right? And matter of fact, he would. Why wouldn't he? He's telling a story to to a culture and to a people. So he's going to use their storytelling methods. Like if you're going to make a movie, right, you're going to make a movie that has a lot of the elements that are popular in movies that appeal to the cultural mindset, so people watch it. So Moses wrote uh, using these, myth- these elements that are similar to other mythologies, but that doesn't tell us about the truthfulness or the nature of the content. Right, so we it doesn't just because he uses some of these elements of storytelling doesn't mean the content isn't historical, and so I think that's the where Craig jumps is that he takes the elements of genre and says that therefore determines the historical nature of the content, and that's where I think his his he goes too far
0: so what implications for the doctrine of original sin mm-hmm. would his genre of mytho history have? Because of course, if you don't have a special, in my mind, if you don't have a special, specially created Adam and Eve who God breathed life into, as it says, Mm. in some meaningful sense, um, how how does that work out theologically?
2: Well, Craig, you know, I've read this in his interviews. He mentioned he discusses it a little bit. I think in the book, he he doesn't actually embrace uh, the doctrine of original sin. Anyway, so uh, he doesn't see, but for those who do, he tries to make the argument that this doesn't make a difference because uh, because there is still a historical Adam and Eve. We just can't know much about them. Uh, we just only know what the, the, the Bible tells us, which is more of the theology of Adam, the textual information we need to know. But we don't really know the history except what science tells us is the origins of biological humans. Mm-hmm. So... I, the essence of his argument, the best I can understand, is that if you want to believe in original sin, the doctrine of original sin, that's fine. Uh, he, in his view, his theory doesn't undermine that. Uh, for me, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with that assessment. I, I do think that the way he's framed this uh, creates a bit of a problem for that because he'll say that, well, there was no real garden. There was no real, what he calls a magical tree. He's like, there's no, no such thing as a magical tree. And why would this, choose? it's like, well, the text never says there was a magic tree. And I think that's a right disingenuous framing of the historic doctrine of what, what is taught to say that there was some magical tree compared to what the text tells us. Um, And I'm, to be honest, I'm a little disappointed at, at this part because you know, the Craig that you and I have read for a long time, you know, and in so many amazing areas, um, you know, I just don't see him framing the argument, the counter argument in a way that's really a fair framing of what the, what Christians have understood that text to mean uh, when labeling things, using these sort of pejorative terms as magical trees and stuff. Yeah. Um. You know, uh, So I, I don't know. I, I don't know anybody that's ever used the argument that there was a magic tree, but that's what he seems to think is the alternative to his no tree, that these are just sort of mythic elements to tell a story of humans came about, somehow sin came into the world, and there was a need for a savior.
0: Yeah. I was listening to his – uh he does a Sunday – uh, defender's class, his Sunday school mm-hmm. class that he teaches every Sunday. And I've I've listened to lots of that. And there was one really interesting uh he does this every year. So there's several, you know, times he's gone through and done all this. But there there was one episode I was listening to where he went through the doctrine of original sin and basically said he doesn't think that original sin can be extrapolated from the Bible. But he said he thinks it's true philosophically. Now, I don't know if he's changed his view on that, but I remember that really standing out to me because I I remember thinking—I was out walking and I was listening to that and I was thinking, I can't think of one reason somebody would do this move unless they were trying to work out a non-literal Adam and Eve in some way. Um, And again, I don't want to go to motive on that, but it just seems like such a a strange move to say, well, I don't think it's taught in the Bible, but it's— Philosophically necessary, or we can obviously see that it's you know true in reality or in practicality, but um, yeah. but it could be yeah. that there's something tied in with his Adam and Eve I, stuff.
2: I do not understand his argument on this anyway. Uh, I, I I really doesn't make sense to me, and I've I've listened to his defenders' classes. Uh, I've gone through at least I think at least one cycle of it. I haven't listened to mm-hmm. multiple cycles, but at least one cycle. So that was a few years ago um and so i've listened to those things i've i've seen his videos talking about this and i've read this book and other books as well i just don't understand his point that he's trying to make like you say though i think this is part of what i think is the weakness of the book is it um i think he began with this idea that i there's this truth that evolution the story of evolution tells us about human origins and he'll say that i'm not basing my text on that you know his interpretive methods on that but i i just can't get around the fact that it, it is the unstated premise to why he needs to make a lot of the moves he needs because i i just don't see it textually why he needs to make there's other simpler explanations for many of the issues he brings up than the story he sort of puts together in his book i think there's better explanations like i said there's There's uh, scholars like Collins and Oswald who have done, I think, a a more direct job dealing with some of those challenges. And there are legitimate challenges there, but I think there's simpler ways to deal with those without giving up what he's given up. Uh, I think the only reason he has to go that way is because he's really trying to say, how do I reconcile my theology with the consensus view of evolution?
0: Which is very interesting because when we get into the science, Obviously, some of that's always changing too. Just because it's the scientific consensus today, doesn't mean mm. that it will continue to be. And it seems like, a, from the start, a, a strange. A, well, it's not strange. I get it. I mean, obviously, we know things about the world because of science. That you know, we we can look at the Bible and realize maybe that there were different things going on than we understood or something like that. So I, I get yeah. that. But to sort of just start from the premise that such a controversial topic that that is debated and a lot of people have pushed back on it is true. And then let's try to make that reconcile with the Bible. Um that that's that's seems to be a little yeah. premature when it comes to evolution. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, I think that's I think that's for me is part of the challenge. And and this is I'll say is looking at the science side, what's interesting is you look at all the, the literature that's going out on the idea of origins. There's a strong shift for new theories of, to explain human origins because the older models just simply aren't working. Uh, they're not ex- sufficiently explanatory based on the evidence as it keeps coming out. There's a lot of simple things, like even the concept of what used to be junk DNA. We're realizing isn't junk; that it serves a, a, a purpose. And so that, of course, was a strong argument originally for universal common ancestry—the idea that you know humans evolved from lower forms of animals and are just living animals. But as that story has, that scientific story has changed people aren't giving up their commitment to to animal-to-human evolution. They're just saying, we need new theories. And they become these sort of ad hoc theories where you just keep adding, you know, pieces and pieces and pieces together to try to make it work, but it's not. So Christians that are trying to make our theology fit with that storyline, I think we're going to be disappointed in the next 10 to 20 years because we're going to realize we need to revise again and again Mm. and again what we believe about the historical Adam and Eve. And I think once we get ourselves in that position, while that may be favored now, people will look back in a a decade and say, what were people thinking? Um, Mm. Why were they trying to accommodate something that itself acknowledges that it's unclear and uncommitted to those you know, the facts of those things are just not clear.
0: I think many Christians think, or they're under the false impression that
2: Mm. if
0: they're going to believe in a historic Adam and Eve, um, that somehow, you know, Christians must reject science or be afraid of science. Mm. Um, How would you go about answering that?
2: Yeah, you know, we don't at all. There's no shame in... Uh, standing firm in the scripture, yet trying to understand what science is telling us. So, uh, specifically when it comes to evolution, the, the older terms that are used that I think have come back into use again. You know, the microevolution versus macroevolution. Mm-hmm. Yes, st- everything changes over time. Everything changes. Uh, our bodies were were built by God, designed by God to adapt. And the funny thing is, we're seeing that a lot. I just read literally yesterday, or maybe it was this morning, this article about how. Birds in the Amazon are adapting to global climate change and they're evolving and stuff. Well, yes, animals change based on their environment that they're around. And that's been, people have known that forever and that's never been in doubt. The question is, uh, does that mean a bird turns into something else? Right. Well, no, we haven't observed that the, the, on the macro level. So on the micro level, yes, things change because our body has all these genes and there's like little switches in them, right? Like a light switch on the wall. And so there's, there's factors, there's influences from outside that say, oh, flip these switches on, flip these switches off that help animals adapt and survive based on those circumstances. But we can't say that because that's true, that you can flip enough switches to turn you know, a bird into a lizard into a monkey into a human kind of thing Uh, that's what we don't have the evidence of so on the macro level i don't think there's any embarrassment there's too many fabulous scientists out there who are saying look we don't have to buy that part of the story to to be christian or to even be good scientists because there is legitimate questions out there against and, and evidence that it just simply didn't happen that way
0: so do you think um in order to consider yourself a thinking christian and i th- obviously this is a softball cuz i know you're going to yeah. you're going to answer this but should <laughs> we right. be embarrassed by our rejection of uh, animal to human evolution if if christians are saying no we we the bible does not teach that should we be yeah. timid or embarrassed in the public square
2: yeah no uh, that's and yeah it is a softball cuz you kind of know where i'm going with this we've <laughs> talked about this a little bit before but yeah no uh, uh, at one point, look, theistic evolutionist folks said that science proved there had there could never be an Adam and Eve, and it wasn't that long ago—only like a f- three years ago—that <laughs> uh, uh, there are certain groups and individuals saying that you know that this evidence disproves any possibility. Now, those same group of scientists are saying, "Well, no, that the science doesn't disprove that," and actually, the science never said that th- that it didn't. Anyway, they just were trying to appease sort of a scientific worldview to show how understanding they were or how open they are to accepting science. And they're willing to reject anything the Bible says just so they can, I don't know, be academically successful or be uh, appealing to the world around whatever their motives are. uh, They've had to backtrack on those things. So faithful Christians, again, they pushed back against that theological, those theistic evolutionist views. And again, you know, the ones who stood faithful to say, look, science does not disprove a historic Adam and Eve have been proven right within a few short years. So I don't feel like there's any need to give up the farm just because there's a consensus view. I mean, the consensus view used to be, as we've talked about before, that, you know, uh, non-whites, uh, especially African peoples, were born lower uh, on the scale of evolution. That was the yeah. scientific consensus. The scientific consensus was poverty was a biological problem. Uh, there's a lot yeah. of things... That, that science used to tell us were true that we just know are not true. So uh, I think that when we hold firm to the truth of scripture, the revelatory power that God has given us in that, that we'll never be embarrassed.
0: Yeah. The, this consensus was once that the world was held up on the back of a giant turtle too. So, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. you, know. yeah. you know, so, so, okay. So you talked about some of the examples of where science is changing. You mentioned junk DNA and some of that stuff. Um, if there's more of those that you want to mention, you know, feel yeah. free to mention those. The, those. But my question would be, should Christians, specifically apologists who are going to be probably interacting with a lot of this stuff, should we be investing a lot of time studying Dr. Craig's mixture of scientific theology to better help us understand Genesis or, or human origins? Do you think this is worth, you know, spending a lot of time on, engaging with?
2: Yeah, Yeah, I I think the junk DNA is great for people that want to dig in, dig into some of the the stories about junk DNA, uh, the idea of pseudogenes. uh, Those are some keywords people could kind of search for and understand. You could see the changing uh, consensus science is constantly changing on those things and they have huge implications. Uh, Epigenetics is another field uh, that people can look into. I'll tell you this one because it's fun. So we used to think that you know, the Darwinian model is that we're all just sort of victims of our DNA. Our DNA controls everything about us. But now we realize there's this thing outside of our genes, epigenetics, stuff that controls our makeup and who we are. There's even studies now, multiple, that have confirmed that, so for example, your lifestyle choices prior to getting pregnant can have an impact on the 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 baby as it's developing as grown, long-term impacts. And we always used to think that was true, you know, for women, you know, because if they were doing drugs or alcohol, we saw these fetal symptoms at birth and we saw this stuff. But now studies show that that the male sperm is actually impacted by mm. a man's choices prior to, you know, inseminating a woman. So we can see now that it's not just this sort of um, slavish victims of genetic ancestry, that there's a lot of factors that play into it. I think the Bible tells us that the sins of the father and mother can be visited on a third and fourth generation. And I, I don't want to take that too sciencey and force science into that, but I do think that it's true that we can make choices that that have impacts on our families. And I think that there's a, a genetic, uh, you know, an epigenetic influence there that, you know, shows something. So you know those are a few things people could search but yeah to your second question part of that uh should christians and you know invest time in understanding this um i guess my my first my, my initial answer is no i wouldn't spend a lot of time investing this if you've got other things um and part of it is and this is sort of a tongue in cheek answer but or maybe a little cheeky answer but uh you know part of me responds th- and this is the rebellious part of me. You know, I just like, I always want to fight against the, the consensus. I'm a, I'm a fighter, you know? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, Craig doesn't even make the claim that he believes his own theory. Mm. So why should we? It's kind of a, sort of a rhetorical question, but it, it just, it, it bugs me. When Craig will be on interviews talking about this, he's like, well, I'm not saying that my book is true, that it tells you what is true about us. I'm just saying that this is the best argument for this if you want to believe these certain X, Y, Z things. So why write a 450 page book with a theory that you yourself don't even want to commit to? So if he, if he spent years studying and writing this and, and his conclusion is I'm not committing to the truth of this. Part of me says, why should I commit to accepting the truth of this? I mean, I know that seems like, so maybe like a, Anti-intellectual argument or something. I don't know. I feel like I'm cheating in saying that, but I don't know. Does that let me ask you? Does that does that make sense? What I'm saying by that sort of statement? Yeah,
0: I I think it does. It's like I I've always preferred to learn from people who are really persuaded for their particular view. Even just studying theology, if I'm going to study some theological point, I want to learn from the person who holds position X. And then I want to learn from the person who holds position why, because I want, to, I want to know what persuaded them, why they believe that's true. And if someone's sort of just throwing something up like, I, you know, this it could be this, but science, everything's changing. And I, I get what you're saying, but maybe people listening are thinking, well, you know, is what you're saying, does that mean that apologetics isn't necessary or it's not worth mm-hmm. your time? I don't think that's what mm-hmm. you're saying, but maybe speak some clarity to that.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think there's a couple, let me bring out a, a Bible passage that I think is relevant to that about this idea of plausibility. Cause when we're talking about apologetics, we have to say, what do we mean by apologetics? And so I think Paul addresses one piece to that question in first Corinthians chapter two, verses one through five. So I'll just go ahead and read this if you don't mind. Uh, he says this, uh, and when I came to you, Brothers, do not come I I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. And I think that's the part that applies here. Craig is arguing for what's plausible, but not what's actually true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in, but I came to you says in demonstration of the spirit and empower so that your faith might rest on the wisdom, not on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So the first part about apologetics we have to understand is that we use reason, we use wisdom, but not for the sake of proving our reason and our wisdom and our skills and philosophy. We use it so that people might know and experience the wisdom and power of God. And so if, if our apologetics is focused on these plausible, philosophically, oh, well, this is likely, unlikely arguments, I think we're getting into a whole realm that in the academic world is valuable. and in, in, in an enlightenment world, I get the value of that. And I, ha- I spent a lot of my life in that with a lot of degrees. <laughs> and so I, have no, I, I enjoy those things. But my enjoyment of those debates and discussions and argument doesn't justify me turning my apologetics into those issues. I've got to remember the purpose of my apologetics is that when people are struggling to find faith in Jesus Christ, I don't need plausibility. I need something that's firm and true. And what that is, is found in the in the person of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I know what the Bible tells me, that through one man, sin came into the world. And so righteously, I know that God gave me escape through the second Adam, through the second man. And anything outside of that, I don't really in a relational way I'm talking here. I'm not saying mm-hmm. don't study those things, whatever, but I'm saying when I'm dealing with people, I say, look, these are the, this is the core. This is where I'm going to – this is my hill to die on because this is where you're going to find your salvation hope and, and the power for salvation. So that's really yeah. that that first aspect of that. So, th- I mean, is that – I have another one, but I just want to stop there and say does that kind of resonate with what you're looking yeah,
0: for? Yeah, it, it, it really does because it's like it, – I've heard people use that verse almost as a cop-out to where like, I don't have to study anything. Mm-hmm. I don't have to become intellectually informed because just, just the Christ crucified and like, I don't have to know anything else. And I think, no, I think your answer was was very thorough. It's like we could we could spend all day speculating on things and there are, and that's why I mentioned that earlier. There there are hills that I will die on. And yeah. I have friends and, and people that I consider to be my brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, don't die on the literal Adam and Eve hill. And I get that and uh, you know, I'm not saying that that's a requirement for salvation, but I think it's essential to the gospel. As far as theologically, mm. um, makes makes things really problematic yeah. for the gospel if we don't hold that line. Like you said, there's a first yeah. Adam and there's a second Adam, and the whole gospel story is really framed around that. And so that's that's a pretty important hill to die on, in my view. But yeah. what was the the second verse you wanted to bring yeah, up? Yeah, so
2: the second verse that I think jumps out to me is from First Timothy one four. Um, and this is Paul speaking to Timothy uh, because he's having these false teachers coming to the church. And, I, and by the way, I don't mean that Craig is a false teacher. I'm not implying that by this verse. Right. So nobody, you know, send your hate mail to elisa.childers at... I hate William Lane Craig.com. Well, listen, know, there,
0: there's <laughs> there's going to be a split. We're going to get people mad that we criticized uh, him, and then people mad that we didn't yeah. call him a false teacher. So you know, yeah, we're going to get letters from all of it.
2: <laughs> you can receive all those. Welcome to you. Uh, <laughs> What's your address, there, Joe? <laughs> no one can even find me, so I don't know what he cares about me. <laughs> so, uh, but First Timothy. So I'm not saying that, but I. But but this is the context for what Paul's saying to him in this chapter, First Timothy four. So the first the first thing he tells him is, you know. Uh, stand against false doctrine, these false teachers. But two, he says, nor so. There's a separate point. He says, nor uh, devote. And stand against those who devote themselves to miss and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So while theologians and philosophers and academics, we're going to battle this issue out and what Craig does again, the positive is he affirms the need for historical Adam and Eve. I think his framework for that uh, falls flat. And, and, and like I said, he, he's not even sure he accepts it as truth. So I'm not sure I do, but that's where it gets to these speculations rather than stewardship of the gospel of the hope that we've received. So, Again, uh, you know, when you talk about endless genealogies, what become more endless than pushing Adam and Eve back further and further, further simply because the science says they couldn't have come from this group. They must come from that group. That's an endless genealogy Mm. that will always be changing in science. So I think the, the genealogies that scripture comes to us, I I don't have any reason to say that those aren't, those aren't more sure. Those, I think, are a greater foundation to build my faith on than the speculations that come with philosophy and science. Not that they don't have validity for what we're doing, but just that that's not where we want to build uh, our foundation on. And I think that's what Paul's, you know, they had their version of it in Paul's time. We have our version of it now, but the principle remains the same. That's good.
0: Well, in a moment, we're going to go to our Patreon-only uh, sort of after-party hangout time. And if you want to be a part of that, you can go to patreon.com slash Elisa Childers and select Tier 4 to be a part of a private Facebook group. And by the way, in that Facebook group, uh, we we have a small little book club where we read skeptical books. We read progressive books. We're currently reading through a progressive book right now and just analyzing it, trying to understand where the authors are Coming from and how we can interact with those things biblically, but also if you if you are part of that small exclusive Facebook group, you get to ask the questions that I ask my guests in our after party hangout time. And then uh, if you select tier three, I think you get access to that bonus video. But if you just sign up for the the first tier, you get early access to all these podcasts. So check that out at Patreon.com/slash Alisa Childers. Uh, Joe, so as we close out this portion. Um, if you could just, if somebody just said, "Hey, what'd you think of William Lane Craig's book?" and you had to give just a two-minute little summary review, how how would you summarize your thoughts?
2: I I I, I applaud Craig's uh, scholarship that uh, and his desire to want to stand firm for historical Adam and Eve. I applaud his effort to want to try to make an understanding of how the scripture fits with science. Uh, unfortunately for me, I just don't think this book meets the standard that I've, I've come to expect when reading a, a William Lane Craig book. Uh, and so, uh, he's, he's non-committal on it. Uh, and so I find no reason to really commit to it as a, as a, a theory that I'd want to stand on because he's not going to stand on it either. Uh, so I think there's some better literature out there that I would point to that, that address these questions that already exist. And, uh, those are, those are things that I would, I would, I would point to for the f- people really wanting to dig in to something specific about how to understand the challenges of Genesis with, the uh, issues of modern science.
0: And what are a couple of those resources? Of course, we want to plug your website, morethancake.org, More Than Cake. And uh, Joe has blog posts on there, videos where he's interacting with these ideas in depth. So definitely check that out. But Joe, what are a couple of other resources that you might say, hey, read this instead?
2: Yeah, so definitely. I, I actually have a couple listed there. So I did an interview a little while ago with a guy named John Oswald. I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, he deals with, he has a book out that deals with, uh, you know, the idea of Genesis uh, as among other myths and uh, what that's about. And so I did an interview with him a few weeks ago that's posted there. So, and I've links to his book from the site as well. So John Oswald, you can find his book on Genesis out there. Uh, And then also, I think John Collins has some good writings on this. And if you just search John Collins, Genesis, uh, myth, history, that kind of stuff, you'll, you'll come up with some Great posts that he's put. You'll come up with some books that he's done. I think he does a good job uh, with dealing with those as well. And I think some of the resources actually put out from Reasons to Believe, uh, Hugh Ross's group, uh, have mm-hmm. dealt with Genesis pretty well, and they're they're dealing uh, with this very issue as. on their site as a blog level. They have some books coming out this year. So those are some names I think I'd I'd have people start with, and they can kind of find some good online resources that will lead them to some deeper books if they really want to go that far.
0: Um. Yeah, very good. All right, well, I want to thank my guest, J.R. Miller, for joining me today. Again, check him out, More Than cake. Dot .org for all uh, the resources that he mentioned and also his own resources, blogs and videos and such. If you are watching on YouTube, it really helps if you hit the subscribe button and click that little bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms like iTunes and Spotify, leaving a five-star review really helps get the uh, episodes into the news feeds of more people. Also, if you saw this on social media, clicking like, sharing it with your friends, all of that's helpful and thank Thank you so much for watching and we'll see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.